Brynmar Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. We welcome you to a new Retina Radio episode on the COVID-19 coverage. Today, we will talk about the global response to this terrible pandemic. This virus has changed the lives of everyone on this planet, and certainly it has affected us as retina specialists and our patients dramatically. It began in one part of the world, but quickly spread to involve us all. And now we've developed techniques and a manner of dealing with it, but really our world has changed and, and we're hopeful that it can return to some semblance of normalcy in the near future. I hope everybody out there is healthy, doing well and staying safe. And certainly we hope to all see each other in person soon. But for now, we have the opportunity to talk to some of the great retina specialists around the world who represent the societies that are important internationally, nationally, and regionally in uh, helping retina specialists deal with their daily practices, educational needs, and now dealing with this pandemic. So we have an, uh, experts and leaders of major international societies with us today, and I'm going to have you introduce, have them introduce themselves to you uh, from around the world. So first, I'm going to start with uh, our representative from the Asia-Pacific uh, Vitriol Society. Uh, Paisan, please introduce yourself. Thank you, Tarek. Well, my name is Paisan. I'm from Bangkok, Thailand. I'm the uh, scientific secretary of the Asia-Pacific Vitriol Retinal Society. Well, we're very it's happy pleasure to be here. Yeah. We're very happy to have you, Paisan. From uh, your, your retina in her home in Israel, please, Anat, introduce. I'm Anat Lowenstein. I'm the chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at the Tel Aviv Medical Center and vice dean at the Sackler Faculty of Medicine in Tel Aviv, Israel. And I'm the general secretary of the U-Retina Board, uh, Europe. You know, we're very, very happy to have you. And Fernando. I'm Fernando Revalo. I'm the immediate past president of the Pan American Association of Ophthalmology, a past president of the uh, Pan American Retina and Vitro Society. I'm a professor of ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins um, University and Wilmer Eye Institute. I'd like to thank the uh, invitation by Brian Marr and Retina today. This is a pleasure to be among great friends and, and people that I really admire so much. Well, thank you all. We're really very honored and very happy to have uh, all of you here and members of such amazing uh, groups that uh, have served Retina around the world. You know, the COVID-19 virus came upon us really quite suddenly, or at least our awareness of it came upon quite suddenly. And it spread across the world extremely rapidly. I remember in the very beginning when we heard reports out of China and, and other small areas in Asia, and we heard uh, that this terrible thing was going on, and I think very few people understood that it might have greater impact than it did. I think what the best thing for us to do to discuss this all will be for us to go around the world and talk about how this thing came to light and how your medical practices and how your governments and how your societies responded to it. And really, it's amazing as we listen to these stories, how the rest of the world learned from one another 
quite well. And I think at this point, at the very end, we'll talk about how I think we may be, at least on the medical side of things and, and taking care of our patients, have learned a few things that have helped us do things safely and still treat the eye disease that we do. So I think the way this all hit us first was through our introduction to the virus anyway, was through Asia. So I think maybe it makes the most sense, Paisan, to go to you first to talk about the virus as you first learned about it, as it first began to impact medical care and uh, your responses as a society and uh, throughout the region to this problem. Paisan. Thanks, Russ, Tarek. Well, well um, you know that Thailand is the first country outside China that had the case of uh, COVID-19. Well, um, we had the first case of COVID-19 back in February, early February this year. Um, we're quite fortunate because, well, the weather in January in Bangkok is quite bad. So we keep wearing masks since January. Uh, when COVID-19 hit Thailand in February, we just keep wearing our masks. We don't know if this is a reason why we don't have too many cases of COVID-19 here. Because if you have a look at the number of cases in Thailand, well, the most number of cases is back in the last week of March. We have around 200 new cases on that day. That's the highest number that we have. And well, recently we have only like a single digit of new cases for like a couple of weeks now. However, the government of Thailand still imposed national emergency. We allow to have more cases for surgery at the moment. Well, for the past two months, we are, we are allowed to have surgery or see patients only half or one fourth of the normal cases that we, we treat. However, well, although we are allowed to surgery more cases, well, all of the cases that are going to surgery still need to have nasopharyngeal swab for COVID-19. And if the result's negative, we, we need to wait until the result come back, if it's positive or negative. And then after that, we can go on to have surgery. Yeah, I did a couple of like, cases yesterday, uh, membrane cases. They allow us to do elective cases at the moment, not only emergency cases, but well, we need to do like swap of all the cases. That's about Thailand. Well, uh, I can run you to some other countries in Asia Pacific as well, because we have some information in terms of the Asia Pacific Veterinary Society. Well, in Australia and New Zealand, um, actually, they didn't have uh, a kind of specific retinal guidelines for handling during the um, COVID-19, but they use a guideline which is issued by the College of Australia and New Zealand, College of Ophthalmologists, and they just use that guideline for retinal cases. In Japan, well, it's the same thing because well, um, the Japanese Ophthalmology Society announced the guideline for surgery, but the situation in Japan is quite different from place to place. And well, in the big cities like Tokyo and Osaka, most of the surgery are postponed unless they are urgent. But in some rural areas in Japan, where the doctors, the retinal specialists are allowed to perform surgery as usual, but this affects quite a lot in big countries. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry, in big cities. And for example, in Japan, um, my friend's um, hostel, the optometry ward has to be closed and to allow cases of COVID-19 to be admitted. And in Korea, it's quite interesting because, well, in Korea, they do a lot of tests and there's no lockdown 
in this country. It's very interesting. Well, um, however, even though they didn't have any lockdown, but they have a lot of social distancing and they keep wearing masks and they screen patients, every patient in their OPD. In terms of cases of emergency, um, the patients sent to the facility, which is well equipped to evaluate and manage COVID-19 as long as with your renal cases. So it means if you have renal cases, but your hospital, if don't have any facility to treat COVID-19, you better send to some places. That's in Korea. In Taiwan, Taiwan is still interesting because, well, they don't have too many cases. And they just do things as normal. They just wear masks and wash hands more frequently. That's uh, from Taiwan. I think that's about it for, for me at the first round. Thank you. Well, thank you, Paisan. You know, it's interesting because uh, you do have such a wide range that you discuss and the amount of infection and the procedures are somewhat varied at this point. Was there a lot of communication among the nations or regions in the whole Asian region about what was happening to help guide each other? Or was every country sort of left to their own devices to try to figure out what to do as this spread? Well, to tell you the truth, we didn't have too many communications between societies. Well, um, I know from my friends that we, I mean, each of the hostel have its own guidance for handling no cases. So even though, well, um, the societies may have some guidance in terms of uh, ophthalmology service or retinal service, however, they have to follow the hostel guidance anyway. So based on the survey that we conducted like uh, a couple of weeks ago, well, uh, it's quite interesting because I think it's a good thing that they follow their hostel guidance. And the thing is, well, the practice patterns for, for patients or for caregivers, for ophthalmologists or for adjusting clinic environment equipments are about the same. There's not much different in terms of all these things. And the definition of urgent cases, emergency cases, are about the same. Well, well, they have to treat one eye patients. Well, they have to treat like endoptomitis and they have to treat like rupture growth or ocular foreign body. And for injections, well, treat and extend are option now. So they're quite, well, there's still some like similarity among the dissimilarity, as you say, yeah. Yeah, that's, it's so interesting how people evolve to a similar point over time. Yeah. That's very interesting, you know, and I think that international societies that um, are really even beyond a small region have some interesting perspectives of seeing the disparity of infection rates and, and responses and who controls what uh, level of care. And we were able to, see, you know, you see that with, with Asia for sure. Well, thank you, Paisan. Another area, of course, that has tremendous variability in its representation is Europe. And uh, by Europe, we even mean extending into some aspects of the Middle East where we get into Turkey and Israel. And so uh, Anat uh, can share with us sort of how COVID-19 entered the European system of medical care and specifically retina care you know, obviously Italy and then Spain, they became sort of the initial hotbeds. But then, of course, like everywhere else, it spread. And, and your retina represents many uh, countries in its footprint. Uh, Anand, please tell us about how COVID-19 
entered your world. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Tarek. Um, I think that uh, Europe is uh, even uh, more, has more variety in the countries than uh, what Paisan uh, talked now in the Asia Pacific region. And, uh, and it was also a big difference uh, in the pace uh, in which the disease uh, spread. As you said, yeah. Italy was hit really fast and then other countries were, were hit less and in a slower manner. And we tried to learn from each other. But the Euratina board actually identified very early on that there are various guidance uh, points that are different between the different countries. And uh, we, we felt as a board that it's too difficult to uh, maybe try and publish guidelines that will be uh, compatible with the routines in every country. Therefore, what we did, and you can find it on the Euratina uh, board website, that we looked at uh, all the reports from the national uh, societies of the different countries and we have a report uh, starting from the Netherlands, from Germany, from Italy, from uh, the UK, from Paris, from France, sorry, from Israel, uh, from Switzerland and from uh, even uh, and for also of course uh, as I said Israel and uh, Turkey and uh, we tried to just post them on our web website so that everyone will uh, be familiar with what are the various guidelines. But at the same time, we also provided a summary of all these routine in practice. And when we, you, and it, it also, it's provided on the website and you can see a table that summarizes all of it. But basically, if you want to see what was very similar between all the countries was that most countries moved to emergency surgeries only at least at first, and I'm now, now talking about the hardcore time of the pandemic. So only emergency surgeries, that was uh, almost in all countries. Uh, almost in all countries, people got an entrance questionnaire asking if they had fever, if they were exposed, if they have symptoms. Then in most places, in most countries, the escorts were minimized to minimum. And in some countries like the Netherlands or Israel, only one companion was allowed. For the working environment, everyone was disinfecting between patients and uh, keeping appropriate distance. In some countries, the disinfection was even stronger. Everyone was using gloves and a surgical mask, whereas the use of a specific mask, such as N95, was uh, uh, not so common in most uh, countries in people that do not have, that are not diagnosed. Um, and in some countries also, people were wearing surgical uh, uh, scrubs and using uh, breath guards. I have to say that uh, what we did pretty fast is when, for example, I saw in my country the we were actually hit uh, in a moderate manner. I think it is because we really took very, uh, very severe measures really, really fast. Uh, and in my country, everything was stopped. The country was almost closed really uh, early in the process. And uh, until today, we, we, we really had the very, not a lot of patients and um, really not a lot of casualties. And when we saw this, we started to uh, communicate with our colleagues. For example, we have special uh, guards for the slit lamp that were built in Israel, and I sent it to all my Italian friends by FedEx, uh, and uh, they, they were very happy about it. So there was some communication between the countries. As we come out of the pandemic now, uh, there is also some difference between the countries, but I think in, for what is very unique, what is very uniform is that uh, pe people, uh, I mean, uh, the institutes are trying to space out the patients a bit. 
The difference is if you already accept all elective surgeries or, or not. We do ex accept now all elective surgeries, but we demand a COVID-19 negative test and, uh, we and we space the patients apart and we keep uh, very close, um, we keep very uh, strict um, disinfecting uh, criteria and we allow only one companion per patient and it does not come into the room. Another thing that came up loud and clear is that it's good to minimize the exposure or the, the time of physician-patient together. For example, uh, maybe read all the chart before you make the patient come into the room and then you're ready just to see him really fast and, and uh, give your recommendation. And I think this uh, was very beneficial in my country. Another thing that uh, I, th I think was, was very uniform in all the countries was a little bit difference in the routine um, of the injections. For example, many physicians move to fixed regimen or uh, treat and extend, uh, sorry, fixed regimen as compared to uh, something that uh, mandates an OCT examination, at least in the hardcore of the pandemic. And now finally, I just want to say something small that was, I think, only in my country, that uh, what we did, we uh, actually, at first, we, until now, until this week, we went to patient homes to inject. And uh, wow. this was extremely successful. It was amazing. Patients were crying from happiness. We did it. We were mm -hmm. all protected. The patient was protected. And I think it was a very uh, excellent initiative. Mm -hmm. And now we switched instead of doing that, because now we are already working in full capacity, so we cannot afford the resources for that. Now what we are doing, we are going, going to elderly patients' homes in a very well-protected manner. We are given a room and we are injecting to these patients who are still not allowed to leave their homes yet in uh, some areas. We are injecting in the uh, elder patient, in the you know, in the protected uh, environment uh, homes. Yeah, that's amazing, Anad. I, I think yeah. that is the only uh, time I've heard anyone say that, and yet you've you've demonstrated how effective that can be, and really how necessary. You know, these terrible, stressful times really bring out the ingenuity in our abilities to solve problems. And that's really quite remarkable. Of course, yeah. your patients are going to expect uh, something like this. Of course. To go and on. I want to say one more thing. We got a great donation from WeWork, WeWork Israel. They gave us a whole floor <clears throat> in a remote area from the hospital. And we opened an injection and OCT cleaning there. We brought all the instruments from the hospital, including computer, computerization and everything. And we are doing there until today. They're letting us still have it until the end of May. Uh, we are doing there just a really fast OCT uh, injection and go home. And it's not in the hospital. So this is another thing that really helped us cope to with the situation. Do you think uh, that, Anas, that may be something that will go for, I mean, um, does it establish some form of a, a basis for a business model of some other or some other method of it. delivery? Do you think that will go forward for you? For I think Israel? it does. I think it does. Actually, the, uh, we work, I uh, know that I want to uh, publicize them, but they uh, were so nice about it that they said that they are going to let us keep it as much as we need it. And uh, it's, it, they, it's, it's amazing. That, and I think it's, uh, it's really something that maybe we will, uh, in the future, we want to hold it even, you know, if we have to pay for it. Well, I think we're in a time now where we, where we are probably faced with redefining the manner in which we deliver this type of care. So, you know, I think desperate times really lead to the most ingenious of solutions, things that we would have thought are either not appropriate, not possible, or not viable, or for whatever reasons they could be. 
And we right. all of a sudden prove quite the opposite, that it's actually right. a good thing. Exactly. So that's great. Yeah. Um, one thing about your retina, as we are talking a little bit about the society's response, were you updating the, the chart that you have uh, on the website? It's very helpful. It's, it's wonderful to see, and it breaks down <clears throat> the various aspects of patient care. Were you constantly updating that as information came in? Because certainly procedures change so rapidly. You know, it's, uh, it's one thing for the American Academy of Ophthalmology or the ASRS to do it in one country, even though in the United States, the, the, the actual states have a lot of control right. in, in this. Right. But I think it's quite something else when you're dealing with multiple countries, as right. in all three of your societies. Right. So I have to say that uh, because on the board of the Uretina, there is a representation as mandated from uh, different areas like uh, mid-Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, Medi Medi more Mediterranean part and so on, then we have representatives on the board and we are able to update all of this. And if you look at the summary table, there are two colors and one is the more updated one already into the Corona routine, new routine. So we are updating it and uh, now we have a subcommittee that is looking into a constant that is uh, uh, that will be uh, head by uh, Raminta Dayoni and uh, Al Ledlow and uh, and they are going to update it all uh, you know very very constantly and in a very structured manner as we come out of the pandemic. Yeah, that's great. You know, I will tell you, I think the rest of the world will definitely benefit by paying attention to the uh, to this table, and it's it's a great service to to all of us to have that because I think that we can all. One thing, this thing has emphasized more than anything else, sort of an idea that the Retina World Congress has tried to put forth, is we can really all learn so much from each other all, over, all around the world, because we each face the same overarching problems, but we have so many other little issues along the way that can be very different, and we can learn uh, new ways of thinking about all of this. So thank you, you know, Anna. That's great. When we were just starting the pandemic in Israel, Paolo Lanzetta from Italy wrote to me, Anat, stop all elective surgeries. Don't go out. It's serious. Don't underestimate the situation. It's terrible and it's serious. And we definitely learned from this. Yeah, it's so nice. And we've taken something that friends talk about because we, we all know each other very well and we have many friends thank around the world. But not everyone knows everyone else. And to have coordinated efforts for education like this are really great to spread that friend-like information around the world. So thank you, Anat. Thank you. Fernando, the uh, Pan American Society and really all of the Latin American uh, nations and uh, nations of the Western Hemisphere have really been very uh, advanced and forward-thinking about educational uh, efforts during these times and sort of their reactions to the issues going around about the pandemic. Tell us a little bit, uh, Fernando, about uh, your uh, knowledge of these things. So the Pan-American Association of Ophthalmology is uh, on a uh, very extraordinary uh, circumstance because we represent uh, national societies from 26 countries. And uh, as you mentioned, yes, Latin America is a big part of it. Uh, but we also have the American Academy of Ophthalmology in Canada, and also the West Indies included in the Pan-American Association of Ophthalmology. So uh, in terms of education that you just mentioned, we have um, multiplied the number of uh, educational webinars that we had. Uh, we used to have two webinars a month. And uh, uh, now we have webinars that are several a day. 
coming from uh, the Pan American Association of Ophthalmology, but also from the multiple um, subspecialty affiliated societies that we have. Uh, and that has proven to be uh, a great asset. One of the worries of our members was that during this pandemic, uh, what are we going to do to keep updated? And turns out that uh, in our region, and I see that is happening all around the world, these webinars have kept everybody uh, updated to the point that uh, I don't think people can keep up. Uh, with the uh, amount of uh, uh, webinar, educational webinars that, that we have. So we select the ones that we're more interested on and, uh, and it's been extremely successful. Just to give you uh, an example, the uh, Pan American Association of Ophthalmology has a um, virtual uh, Pan American Symposium that just started uh, and every Monday uh, we have a topic uh, for nine sessions uh, and uh, um, for the first one, we had uh, almost a thousand people uh, on that uh, uh, connected to that symposium. And uh, um, it's, uh, I think it's uh, something that is benefiting everyone and that probably is going to change the way we do things in the future. Uh, uh, I don't think the person in person, person to person meetings or in person meetings are going to go away. I think they're going to change. They're going to be a little different. We're going to have to, uh, at least for a big while, uh, keep some distancing and, and, and make sure everybody's safe. But, uh, but at the same time, maybe a hybrid approach with some virtual components so that people that do not feel safe uh, can connect virtually or some more virtual meetings uh, we just had at Hopkins uh, uh, um, um, Retina Festival that uh, also was, um, and I participated the whole day, uh, we had um, uh, a full day of retina with uh, 50 experts from all over the world. And I think that's where, you know, things are going in terms of education. Uh, I wanted to mention a little bit about the situation uh, of the uh, COVID in, in, in our region, uh, because uh, again, we are separated not separated, but divided in terms of region uh, in subcontinents, the uh, Latin American subcontinent and the North American uh, subcontinent. Uh, but the Latin American subcontinent includes Mexico and everything uh, um, south to that. And, uh, and things are a little different in both of them because uh, in the United States, uh, yes, all these uh, measures that have been mentioned have been taken. Uh, considering that in our region, in general, in the Americas, we are in a different uh, part of the curve. Uh, we are still, in many places, uh, the cases are still towards the peak or in the peak of the pandemic, or just beginning to be stabilized, but not definitely decreasing uh, and thinking uh, about uh, a reopening like in Europe and Asia, although there is some talk of reopening in the United States, as you know, uh, um, but um, I think hopefully that's not gonna happen too uh, uh, untimely because that could be dangerous for uh, a relapse of, of cases later on. So I'm a little concerned about that. 
So uh, the situation in Latin America is a little different in terms that when, the, when in the United States we have support from the government for those ophthalmologists and institutions that are losing money during this difficult time because we're concerned about uh, our health and staying healthy, our families, uh, that's the main concern. But we're also concerned about this financial hit that is uh, really uh, one of the worst in modern history, probably the worst. Uh, um, and uh, in Latin America, there is no uh, support from most governments uh, in terms of uh, helping ophthalmologists overcome this financial crisis. And uh, it's really create, creating a, a significant stress on, uh, on our ophthalmologists and, and, and how to move forward uh, during this uh, pandemic. The uh, concerns, for example, are what is going to happen to uh, to our practices, uh, um, for example, for law, people, letting people go in the U.S. is allowed, uh, while in Latin America, the law does not allow that. So if you have a practice in Latin America, you cannot, you know, do that, and you keep paying your, the salaries of all your employees while you're not seeing any patients. Basically, your, your practice is closed because you're seeing only very few emergencies, many, many few cases that are organ, many few injections, but of course, losing money tremendously. So it is, it is, a, it is a big difference. In terms of um, decrease of the number of cases that are being seen, we are talking about uh, from 70 to 90% of uh, decrease in the uh, percentage of cases that are being seen uh, in clinics and, and, and in the OR. Uh, protections, yes, is, uh, PPE is used uh, uh, significantly, screening for the patients, um, the social distancing, uh, seeing the patients uh, at a distance uh, in time as well, you know, like 30 minutes between patients, so to avoid uh, crowded uh, um, uh, waiting rooms, for example, is important, uh, and, uh, and, and I think uh, uh, it's something that is going to stay with us for uh, for a while. C testing, COVID testing, is done in the United States before surgery. It's not done in Latin America because we don't have enough testing in Latin America uh, to do that. So all patients have to be when they have an emergency operated on uh, as as uh, is the, if they were COVID positive. But we have in the uh, Pan American Retina and Vitro Society. Uh, come up with guidelines similar to ASRS did uh, to uh, determine which cases are uh, emergencies uh, and, and urgent cases that need to be done. Uh, but again, things need to be individualized. And it depends on really uh, if you have a monocular patient, uh, it's going to be different, of course, than, than other situations. Yeah, it's really amazing. You touch on so many points, Fernando, that that um, many of which don't have answers and many of which are problems that are really, we're struggling with uh, each day. I do wanna remind everyone who may be watching or listening to this uh, at the moment that uh, if you have a question and you're on the Zoom platform, you can please type that in and I will try to get it out here in the last few minutes of this conversation. Or if you're watching on Facebook Live, certainly um, you can type it comments as well. And if we have an opportunity, we'll try to get those uh, answered as well.
you know, fortunately, we, we're, we're doing better. We've learned a lot with uh, all of the accommodations made uh, around the world. Definitely, there are, there are nations, regions, cities, even localities that have uh, undue pressures, like you mentioned, with re regards to employees making uh, salaries, trying to stay open. Um, there are going to be an, a whole host of other issues that are going to come about once we, once we start crawling back towards normalcy. And I think that the responses that our societies all have are going to be key in guiding each uh, of our local areas to getting back in a, the healthiest and safest manner possible. Um, I tend to agree with you, in the, uh, Fernando, that there are several things that are very unlikely to return to normal, or at least uh, what we knew as normal, and unlikely to do it in the near term. Uh, one of those is education. It's great to see how many of these webinars and educational platforms have all of a sudden sprung up all around the world. And uh, we sort of always could have done it, but we never did do it because we weren't forced to do it. But now I think the whole world has realized that this is something that, that we are able to uh, do even from the comforts of our own home and continue with education. Um, one thing I do want to emphasize while we're on this call, though, for all of your societies, which I know you all know a great deal about it, but the Retina World Congress is an existent organization that is a platform uh, to sort of unite the societies and the, the physicians around the world. And one of the things that we provide, uh, we would hope to provide as a service to all of the societies is we would be happy to publicize these educational events that come from all of your societies and you know the reach of the RWC is broad because we obviously reach people that are not in your societies, and yet we would love to publicize events that are educational that um, are available to anybody. So please consider that because I think our around the world we're going to be getting our information this way for some time. Um, do you think, uh, Paisan, it's ever going to be the same as it was before? I know you mentioned some countries seem to be operating as they were before already. Yeah. Well, well, I think we better use the term new normal here. Well, I think things wouldn't be the same after this, even though, well, um, though some countries, they seems to, well, like Taiwan, they seems to, I mean, still doing things like before, but they still have to do patient distancing and everything. I think in terms of reopen uh, our retinal service, um, I think the difficult thing is the OR. Well, the OPD may be easier, but the OR, I'm not sure if we still have to do the test for every patient to, before having surgery. How long we're gonna keep doing this? And do we have to do this until we got the vaccine? Well, um, I'm not sure. So I think that's quite, well, um, inconvenient for patients and for us as well. However, it seems that, well, we still have to do it until we get the vaccine. Yeah, we have issues even with access to testing. We have issues right. the timeliness of the response. If you test somebody, but it takes three or four days to get back the result, right. you have an acute problem that doesn't have surgery. How about for you, Anand? 
Uh, I, I think that uh, there'll, there'll be a, a difference now in uh, what's going to happen for the future, for the near future, and even for the far future. I think we will start to really want to see patients mainly if we have to treat them. And as you said, not waste, uh, even in the future, too much time on just monitoring them. So for example, uh, I think there will be more, even more room for home monitoring uh, with, uh, with kind of a, a very structured alert to the physician, to the patient's physician, a reimbursed structured alert to the physician and to the patient that he does need to, to be examined. So I think this is something that is going to come up even, uh, even higher. I think that uh, longer acting drugs will be even more appreciated nowadays. Yeah. And the slow release devices even more than before because so many patients, I think, lost vision because they, I, I saw many patients that lost vision because they didn't come to be examined. Uh, or, te or, or, or treated actually. So I think uh, we will, I will be happier now to use, you, to use measures that uh, will make me treat the patients uh, in an effective manner without uh, wasting time on bringing them for monitoring. It's not in 100% of the cases and I'm not giving up seeing patients, right? But just as a, as a rule of thumb, I prefer uh, routines that will make me treat rather than just monitor. Yeah, I think that's, I totally agree. I think that it's, it's going to be interesting. And, and Fernando, maybe I'll ask you, what do you think is going to happen to the patient-doctor relationship? I've noticed it's very strange now that I'm seeing patients that I've seen for so many years and I'm covered head to toe and you can hardly see my face and you can't see that I'm smiling at them because I have a mask and I can't see their reaction to me. And I find the depersonalization of the interaction to be somewhat disconcerting. It's difficult to, to care for patients in the same manner as, as we've done before. Have you noticed that, Fernando? And how do you think this plays out long-term? How are we going to be uh, close to our patients emotionally if we are trying to get them in and out as fast as we can and only seeing patients that are more likely to require treatment and most of the time they won't even be able to see our faces and, and our reactions. I mean, totally agree with you, Tarek. I mean, you're talking to uh, a Venezuelan that is now living in the United States and a South American, I love to hug my patients. Uh, I love to be, you know, very, very uh, affectious with my patients. I get to know them, they love me, they, I love them. Uh, and this obviously has to be different now. Uh, this has to change, at least for a big while. I think, uh, like uh, Faisan said, this is a new normal. Uh, and uh, we have to get used to it. Now, are we going to go back one day to the way we were? Maybe, but it may take a long time until we have a cure and a vaccine and maybe, hopefully, we can feel that this is another virus that we have, uh, that we can deal with uh, without major consequences. But that's, that's not the case for, a, it's not going to be the case for a long time. I think that uh, the new normal uh, definitely makes it more difficult to uh, relate to patients the way uh, we did. The patients that I know uh, still can see the smile uh, through the mask. Uh, because they know me, uh, they are happy with uh, 
elbow bump, you know, um, they, yeah. they, uh, they know I, they, I care for them, uh, but the new patients cannot get that because they don't know me. So it is uh, definitely uh, more difficult. I don't think that uh, retina and, and ophthalmology practice are going to be the same. Um, maybe uh, there is no question that social distances and, and the uh, PPE protection uh, needs to be needs to stay for a while, uh, at least the foreseeable future. Um, the I think something that needs to change as well is uh, the 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 volume. We we work in in academic institutions where volume is key uh, to to survive uh, financially, and and now we cannot have uh, pack. Uh, waiting rooms and, and, and extended waits. Uh, so we have to find a way to deal with that. Uh, well, that maybe if you have... Yeah, that's a yeah. good segue, Fernando, because yeah. I think, you know, as we get ready to close out um, the session, I think we have to mention some of those ways or potential ways that we can maintain some patient interaction uh, and yet and deliver good care in, under these circumstances. And I think one of those would be telehealth, you know, and, and Anand, I know you have some thoughts on, on telehealth. I yes, was going to mention, oh, sorry, sorry, Anand, please. We, we actually tried to build telehealth in our institute for many years, at least for the last two or three years, and it never worked. You know, the platform was not good enough. There was, a, But now that we had to do it, all of a sudden we were, we were able to establish a very good platform. And uh, it's not ideal because it's only good for patients who already have the test from somewhere else or who have something really external. And uh, I think that it's, it's amazing to see how much elderly patients can work with the application of the telehealth that our hospital offered. And uh, we now have every day a few, not a lot, it's, it didn't catch up for all the patients and uh, for all, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't suit everyone, but uh, many, many patients are using it and we have at least a few every day, which is still something much more than we had before. Yeah, I agree. I think that yeah. that is yeah. definitely a challenge that hopefully we will be able to meet, you know, as we start, as they say, coming out of the pandemic and trying to return to normalcy, all of the responses that we saw across the world that you've all highlighted uh, in dealing with staying healthy, staying alive even, and delivering retinal care now have to turn towards the new ways that we deliver medical care going forward, whether it's telehealth um, and otherwise. I'm hoping that all the societies will be able to apply this same measure of hands-on helpfulness to and all of these educational platforms to continue to deliver uh, messages and information about how do we uh, uh, how do we affect a new normal? How do we go on with this? And you know, can I make a, think, can, yes, please. Can I make a comment? Yeah, uh, uh, just to finish the idea on how things may happen in the future is uh, even having virtual waiting rooms. I mean, instead of having the patient waiting in the car and being called. This is being done already. Uh, being called when their turn is, uh, is, is it happens, then you know they come in. So some kind of virtual waiting rooms, uh, even virtual scribes, so that there is more less people, you know, in the in the uh, in the office in the room at the time when we're seeing the patient. Or telemedicine. I think it has increased from. Maybe we used to do maybe 8% of telemedicine. Now it's up to 50% and it's going to increase. And we're having uh, a series of webinars, uh, the Pan-American 
for our members to, to teach on telemedicine. Uh, and uh, uh, and home-based testing, I was going to mention that uh, Anna uh, at the Retina Festival, the Wilmer Retina Festival, gave an amazing presentation about the future of uh, home monitoring with OCT, home OCT, the patients can do home OCT, and then we can get alerted when they have fluid, and then we can, we can see them, so we can see the patients that need to be seen and not those that do not need to be seen. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and those sorts of things, you know, I, I'm hopeful, Fernando, we can have our, another webinar in one form or another about how you do that, because that bit of information needs to get out. And I know we're coming up to the end of our time here, but, um, and, and maybe I'll propose other webinars for the future, but things that we have to consider are ways to do telemedicine, even in, if you're in an area that maybe doesn't have access to all of the um, institutional support of a major university, for example. And, and then there's certainly a whole other topic about retinal training. And I think one of the issues that we're gonna to need to figure out is how do we make sure that our retina fellows are learning retina in a way that we would feel is appropriate under these difficult circumstances where maybe the surgical volumes and the hands-on training is not there like it used to be, at least for now. Uh, they're left to watch a lot of videos and this and this, but I think retina fellow training is a whole other issue to talk about. But unfortunately, we're limited in our time here, and I, I think you have all been tremendous guides as to uh, giving information as to what's happened in your regions of the world, how your societies have managed them, um, how groups that I'm affiliated with, with the Retina World Congress really wants to tie you all together to disseminate information and help you all get to your uh, constituency and to others as well, because you have such great information from around the world. And I think that our ability to share it amongst ourselves and then spread it uh, to those that need it is really gonna be the key to fighting this virus, God forbid, another virus or any other thing that might knock the world of retina off its axis. I think the responses that we've seen across the globe have been terrific. So again, thank you all for participating. I look forward to seeing you all, I hope, in person someday soon. And uh, if not, I'm sure on another uh, educational platform of some sort around the world. Thank you to New Retina Radio and uh, Retina Today. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you all. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Brynmar Communications LLC, herein BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, 
incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.